Eddie. And I'm Raj. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. We're a podcast dedicated to hematologic malignancies where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease focus on the latest, and we focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in whichever app you listen to the podcast in, and feel free to reach out directly to us with any feedback. Today, we're excited to talk about the management of peripheral T-cell lymphomas, a challenging and very heterogeneous group of lymphomas that frequently keeps clinicians on our toes, and we'll focus mainly on treatment choices. We're delighted and deeply honoured to be joined by a T-cell lymphoma guru, Dr. Steve Horwitz, who's attending physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York and Professor of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Horwitz. To start with, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your career background, and how you came to focus on T-cell lymphomas? Yeah, no, happy. Pleasure to be here and happy to tell you that story. And I will say that when we tell these stories in retrospect, I think sometimes they're more linear than probably they were prospectively. So what I do now is I'm a clinical investigator and a clinician, mostly taking care of people with T-cell lymphoma and doing studies primarily focused on identifying new therapies, new targets, I do patient-based research. We have labs that we work with for translational science, and our clinical trials run the spectrum from first-in-human phase one to phase three studies. So that's pretty much what I do. I was doing a fellowship at Stanford. The beginning of my fellowship overlapped with the approval of rituximab. So everything that was aggressive lymphomas, and if you look back at old uh, studies of aggressive lymphomas, all aggressive lymphomas were included. There was no lineage specificity in the therapy as chemotherapy and more chemotherapy by and large. Um, and then all of a sudden, everything went to CD20 or B cell targets. And we had this group of diseases that was neglected, unloved, poorly understood, and now not even available for clinical trials. So there was a company at that time called Protein Design Lab that was starting a humanized anti-CD3 antibody that we're doing as a first-in-human study in T-cell lymphomas, primarily cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. I got hooked into the cutaneous T-cell lymphoma program there and saw this as a unmet need opportunity. That drug didn't really go anywhere. It caused a lot of things that we would now call cytokine release syndrome, but I don't think we quite identified at that time, but people would have fevers and rigors in the in the the experimental therapy unit that we had there at that time. So with that thought that that was an area that I felt there was some interest, there was a place where I think there was value in understanding the diseases just because they were really poorly understood at that point. I came to New York with the idea that if I could really focus on T-cell lymphomas, Memorial Sloan Kettering might be a place where that was possible. At that time, a lot of people didn't even just do lymphoma. So I think that was an open question. And I think I went here with the idea that that may or may not work out. And remember specifically thinking that MSK would be an easy place to be from if things didn't go. And then this is a big place. It's a very rich environment. And some of the parts of my early career kind of overlap with some new ideas in T-cell lymphoma that I think we really just started by looking at those patients specifically and studying. And then that's pretty much what I've been doing the last 21 years here. Yeah. yeah, that's very cool, especially to hear about something like CRS that we now understand that that then might might not have. I, I would bring my documentation because we do stuff by hand and sit in the patient's rooms because they were having all these reactions. So you would just sit there and do your work while just so you would be on site that, yeah, now it's a totally different situation. Yeah. So usually we start with a case and then you can walk us through how you might approach this patient and we can dive into the data as, as we go. And so we've got a 32-year-old male who presents with a month of an array of symptoms, swollen inguinal lymph nodes, fatigue, intermittent fevers, some night sweats, and a strange rash on his legs, which is accompanied by some 
intermittent swelling in his knee joints, and he's also lost a bit of weight. A core biopsy of one of the inguinal lymph nodes demonstrates peripheral T-cell lymphoma NOS, not otherwise specified, and a PET scan reveals advanced disease with widespread nodal involvement and some hepatic involvement as well. And he's got he's otherwise well with kind of no other past medical history. And so I wanted to start by asking, when you're taking a history or you're meeting a, a patient with T-cell lymphoma for the first time, are there any things you look out for that might be clues that that that, that this might be more likely to be T-cell lymphoma than another type of lymphoma? Yeah. I'll try to answer that. Honestly, I work at a cancer center, so people don't come to see me unless they have T-cell lymphoma or someone told them they might have T-cell lymphoma. But I would say some of the things that make us think this diagnosis is right, sometimes I start with the idea that if you look at the, these diseases are so uncommon, right? If you look at the confidence intervals around actually having this diagnosis, they cross zero. So I like to approach the diagnosis with a little bit of skepticism. Do we really have this right? Because our treatments for T-cell lymphoma are often not easy. So before we embark on that path, usually there's an aggressive growth rate, not always. So you see some clinical evidence of lymphoma, that they're, that they're sick or there's something really there. There are these people with very indolent courses or waxing and waning courses, but some of those are fake out. So I think those people we think a little bit harder on, is this really lymphoma? It might be, but it's not typical the predilection for extranodal sites, so skin involvement, and you get used to certain appearances in the skin that look more like lymphoma versus not. What else? There's very classic things, right? Hepatosplenic with people with inflammatory bowel disease on immunosuppression or uh, some of the things like that. Here we have a large Caribbean West Indian population, so we think HTLV1 in that population. But I think mostly you're saying, does this person look like they have a cancer or real lymphoma? Okay, let's figure this out quickly. Or are they really not sick? And then the differential is really, is this a reactive mimic or an inflammatory process overlapping with T-cell lymphoma? And not always, but they, they kind of split into, into those two groups, I think, when we first see people. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're presented with kind of a, a vignette like this, what, what else do you want to know? What's your, what are your next steps in gathering information before you or when you're in the room with the patient? Yeah, so this person has what sounds like cancer, right? They have aggressive disease. So you see how they're feeling. You get a sense of the pace of change because for us, often when they come, we sometimes want to redo some of the pathology workup and you're thinking, do we have time? What kind of detail do we have? What kind of information do we get? Or do we got to treat this person yesterday? And then do we want to get a quick repeat needle biopsy or flow from the blood just so we get some cells uh, to work with live? I look at the pathology report. Is it consistent? Does it fit into one of the known entities? Does it all hang together? or sometimes the markers or the pattern kind of cross entities, and then you're not really sure exactly what this is. I like to look at the scans and make sure what was biopsied seems like a really relevant piece. There's a lot of reactive T cells, and if there's a paucity of T cells, you can get things like pseudoclonality. So you like to say, do we feel like they really, whatever biopsy led them to come to us, we like obviously more than FNA, this case it was a core. Does it look like they really got this reflective of the process and kind of those things? Obviously, like PET scan, we look at that, we can talk about some of the the deeper pathology workup, but that usually takes more time. Uh, we like to do PET scans. We like to do head-to-toe with T-cell lymphomas because of the external disease. There is skin. There is sometimes bone involvement. There is sinus involvement. The, 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 the wider area of the scan sometimes adds some important information, particularly if you're going to treat with curative intent. Sounds good. The next question I wanted to ask is, uh, as arriving at the diagnosis of T-cell lymphoma can be a challenge. And I find the subtype diagnoses are often revised when reviewed at a high-volume lymphoma center like, your, like yours. So what is your advice to clinicians about the most important steps to securing the correct diagnosis for a patient suspected to having T-cell lymphoma? Are there any factors in particular that, you, that make you question the diagnosis? 
I think the things that make me worried are indolent course, like this person doesn't really have cancer. Is this a reactive process? Is there other feeling that this is a reactive autoimmune, recent vaccination, recent viral illness? Is there some reason that we're getting faked out here? If someone clearly has cancer, then at least we're in the mix, like it's really something. But we see some of these people who have this very low volume waxing waiting disease. I worry a lot when the diagnosis is primarily based on the clone. So sometimes you'll see a path report that describes relatively normal T cells, but they did PCR and they identified a gamma beta gene rearrangement, TCR rearrangement. So that if it looks like from the path report that the diagnosis was mostly made by the clonality, that can be a fake out. If there's very few T cells, you can get pseudoclonality for very, some reason, or you can have clonal reactive process. So that is a red flag to me that we're not totally sure what we have. Mostly it's that clinical pathologic disconnect. Does this really not fit with the known entity? We'll jump ahead a little bit. I think we'll, we may talk about some of the NGS, but I think now with understanding sort of the mutations of clonal hematopoiesis and, and, and that being routinely done, sometimes we wonder if someone has that and then has an exuberant reactive process, you will find those mutations in the, the normal reactive lymphocytes. And there's, which I really don't want to get into today, there's this whole story about COVID vaccine and is there some relationship and things like that. And, and we wonder about some of the things like that. If you put exuberant inflammation on top of CH, what does that look like? Um, and it might look like a follicular helper T-cell lymphoma. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, now that you brought it up, I do want to ask you about because some of the most common clonal hematopoiesis type mutations like TET2 and DNMT3A are also common in, in T-cell lymphoma. So uh, what's your kind of uh, fine tooth comb look like for, for, for peeling those kind of two case scenarios you just raised about? When people really have T-cell lymphoma or when they have inflammation? Mimic exactly, separating the two. Usually we see additional mutations when it's T-cell lymphoma. So we see significant clones. We see clone the same clone in different parts of the body. We usually see ROE or VAV1 or IDH. There's usually additional than there's those mutations. And usually those mutations are have a lower allele frequency than the TET2 and the DNMTA and the CH mutations. So sometimes you can piece that out. We have amazing hematopathology and they will flow sort and run genetics on separate populations for us if we need them to, if that's critical. So sometimes we're fortunate enough that we can try to answer the question in a really detailed way. And are the T cells genetically different than the background population? Sometimes it takes that. Usually that's a patient who's not sick and we have time to really cogitate. And then the timing, we do see these people get these, these reactions after we have seen extra vaccination. The biopsies do look a lot like follicular helper T cells and then they go away. And then sometimes a month later, you get the genetics. You're like, well, maybe they really did have lymphoma, but it's in remission. So we'll observe. Or you know what? We really think that probably was was not real. And that was probably just a lot of follicular helper T cells with an exuberant reaction to, to whatever. If they're not sick, I think it's worth spending that time to figure out. If they are sick and it's behaving like a cancer, sometimes you have to go with the best information you have at the moment. And are you doing T cell uh, receptor gene rearrangement testing on, on everyone who you think has T cell lymphoma? We do. We do. We like to get the clone. And then again, our practice is atypical. One, because we do this a lot. We do a lot of research and two, we're at a, a center that we have availability. So we'll do that. And then we'll usually sequence the TCR. Primarily for treating with curative intent, that's super helpful down the road because invariably something will happen later that will raise a question of, of recurrence. And having that sequence to probe whatever that biopsy that's questioning that to see it's the same or different clone is really helpful. We think there's sometimes clone switch and stuff like that, but that's something... That's not essential diagnostically. It is reassuring, but but it's sometimes it's often sometimes really helpful to have down the road. And you're glad you already know what that clone was if if, if you can get it.
Yeah, fantastic. That's really helpful. So obviously there are many, many types of T-cell lymphoma and even T-cell lymphoma as a class is is rare. And often I imagine, and certainly my clinical experience, you, you are treating sub subtypes not you know very infrequently unless you're doing a job like yours and so i thought for today we could focus um first on ptcl not otherwise specified nos then maybe talk a bit about angioimmunoblastic ts lymphoma and then anaplastic large cell lymphoma three of the kind of commonest groups so if we jump to ptcl nos uh, first, it's what our, our case patient had. I think a starting point is to come back to what you said about how you got into T-cell lymphoma, which is that many of the initial treatment uh, approaches or frontline treatment approaches for T-cell lymphoma are basically stolen from B-cell lymphoma because, uh, as you said, most of the trials didn't separate them until the rituximab era, particularly things like CHOP or CHOP-based approaches. So for PT-cell NOS, is CHOP your regimen of choice or do you add a topicide? How do you think about treating PT-cell yeah, so I, we use combination chemo. I believe chemotherapy cures people. I think the data bears that out. I think things may do better than CHOP, and I think we can talk about that data. But I think there is a cure with CHOP, and I would I would point some listeners to If we look at, look at the control arms of some of the randomized studies, the CHOP arms in Echelon 2 or Romadeps and CHOP, it actually, those curves are better than the historical registered retrospective curves we have. Where the truth lies, is it a clinical trial population treated in a standard way? Is it all comers with a little bit of a heterogeneous? I don't know, but I, I believe there's a cure right there. And I think maybe when we build on that, we do better. So my bias is for most people, we would treat with curative intent. And I do tend to lean a little more towards a maximal approach. I think, again, where I work, most of my patients are in line with that, and we, we have these conversations, but mostly it's CHOP or CHOP plus something. Our practice pattern for a long time has been to add a top aside on the sense that it might be better, and if it is better, it probably increases the CR rate, and that is probably important if you're going to consolidate, which is something that we've had a bias towards consolidating with autotransplant for quite a while, so we do tend to give a little more enhanced therapy and until Echelon 2 off-study, it was CHOP plus atopicide. Now we have this other data set of CHOP plus BV, and outside of ALCL, neither of those is completely clear that they're clearly better. But but my, my bias is if we can add something to CHOP, we may do better. We can discuss how much better that is, but we may do better. So that's usually what we're thinking. And then, of course, clinical trials for upfront treatment, most of our trials are looking at chemotherapy with something additional to try to improve their CR rates, PFS, OS, et cetera. And so what you say there's a cure rate when you're talking to patients, what do you give them a number or do you just say there's a, a portion of people? Who yeah, I always say I don't like to give a number because I don't. And, and there is, like you said, a lot of heterogeneity and things like that. I think... I, it depends on the, so the patients who ask for a number do that the the way i usually explain it is if you get into a complete remission we can talk about the rates of cleavage but if you get into a complete remission probably between 30 to 40% chance you'd be in remission at 3 4 and 5 years so that those are probably cures if you get in complete remission the complete remissions vary based on what you have and do that but those are kind of the numbers I think about. I think we see those numbers in like Echelon 2, which had a lot of ALCL. Those numbers are a little smaller in Romadeps and CHOP, which didn't. And I, we are understanding that there's quite a bit of variability between the different subtypes in terms of outcome too. But those are kind of very, very basic numbers. I don't find those numbers particularly helpful because would, it's not such a long shot that you would pick a different approach for most people. And it's not such a slam dunk 
that you're not going to worry a lot, but those are, those are kind of the numbers I give. Or that you're not going to choose a clinical trial where, where it's available. We don't have anything that's 90 and we don't have anything that's 10. We don't think, or at least that we know to where, yeah, you might really make a different, a different decision. So you mentioned Echelon 2, just to briefly recap for anyone who hasn't, who, who doesn't know Echelon 2, it's obviously a randomized uh, trial of the CD30-directed antibody drug conjugate Brentuximab Vidotin, which we'll probably call BV, and it showed both a progression-free and overall survival benefit for a group of PTCL all-comers. And as you mentioned, that, that benefit was most pronounced in the ALCL group. And so you half answered this, but I do want to uh, build on it and ask, you know, you said for every, for people with PTCL and OS that you use an, an enhanced approach of CHOP plus atopicide or CHOP plus BV. So how do you choose or do you flip a coin each time? How do you, how do you think about uh, those options for, for, for someone who doesn't have ALCL? Yeah. So for, for PTCL and OS, for instance, like the data is very unclear for both of those approaches being better. And I know people who I like and some who I don't like who are very cynical about that data that anything's clearly better. And I think that's fair. There's no data that something's unequivocally better. And, and, and I think that's that's a realistic look. But both those data sets suggest that they may be better. In BBCHP, the PTCLNS group, the curves kind of come apart for PFS for a while and then come back together later on. But there may be a difference there. So there is some numerical difference at the medians. With the chopisophicide various data sets we have, there may be a higher CR rate, but again, NOS is, is underrepresented there. So the way I kind of think about it these days is etoposide adds toxicity, BV doesn't, but etoposide I can know I can give every two weeks, BVCHP I don't know I can give every two weeks. So there are a group of patients who have kinetically active disease or what we think is underlying HLH or smoldering HLH where I believe that etoposide and maybe every two weeks has some advantages in getting them information to bring them to the next step. But a younger patient where I'm less worried about toxicity and more worried about disease kinetics or underlying HLH, my bias is towards etoposide. We can talk about CD30 in sec two. In an older patient where I think etoposide will be poorly tolerated, where I'm less worried about HLH, where the kinetics of the disease are less, BVCHP did not add any significant toxicity, might be better than CHOP, might not be, but then we would tend to go with that. Obviously, clinical trial not available for, for the purposes of this discussion. But that's kind of a simple way that I that when I take those two data sets, neither compelling and try to break it down or to individualize it for patients. Yeah. And so how does CD30 immunohistochemistry factor into that? I think the, the, the high CD30, I think those patients respond better. When we looked at National on 2, if you just looked at the median above and below, there wasn't really a difference, but the median was 10% and most patients were in that 10 to 20% range. You don't get a lot of high CD30. When we looked at a mycosis fungoid study, so different disease, but but I think to me this was instructive, a study to Stanford where we looked at multiple cuts and really looked at details of CD30 positivity in response rate to mycosis fungoides, obviously a more indolent T-cell lymphoma. If the CD30 max at any biopsy, and everyone had at least two, was 5% or less, the response rates dropped down a little bit. So what I think is when you have very low CD30, the likelihood that brentuximab is fundamentally going to change your outcome for that patient with NOS or AHL, I think is quite low. And if it doesn't add toxicity, it's fine to add, but I think it's quite likely. I think once you get to moderate or higher, then I think there probably is a real response right there and there's real activity. And then my bias would be more to add it. And then kind of the more the target, the better. 
with those other considerations about etoposide and every two weeks and and um these kinetics yeah yeah things like that but it's not like i so i don't have a hard algorithm that i could tell someone and they could just adopt but those are kind of the things you think about when you're having when you're having the discussion with the patient so the next question is whether and how to consolidate patients with PTCL and first response. So how do you approach this decision and discussion with patients you know, regarding consolidation after you have given them induction with CHOP plus etoposide or CHOP plus BV, for example? Yeah, so usually if if it's a patient who might be appropriate for a transplant, if they were doing well, and, and, and that's most of our patients here, a preview during an early discussion, like if things go well, this is something we're going to talk about later on. Our internal data, and I think some other data is... If there's a benefit, we talk about what the if means. If there's a benefit, it's really the chemosensitive patients. That, and the best measure we have of that is CR. And our best internal measure is CR. We've, we've just done PET after four cycles. We did that by convention. We haven't looked at three or five or two. And when we look at that, it's quite predictive that if you're in not in a PET CR, that's really doable one to two. When we've looked, there's very few doable threes. So, but if you're really not in a CR, you're likely to benefiting with continued therapy and transplant is very low. And in fact, most of those patients or many of those patients, if they're not in CR after cycle four, if we keep going through six, they've progressed at that point and there's sort of significant refractory disease. And we don't think, I don't think auto transplant fixes that in general. So we really look at chemosensitivity. So our, our, our basic off trial approach is during the force first cycles of chemotherapy, we're going to see how you tolerate chemotherapy. If you don't tolerate chopper chopper or BVCHP, I worry that high-dose therapy and autotransplant is more toxic for you and the, and the risk may outweigh the benefit. If you don't have chemosensitive disease, I don't think consolidation with high-dose therapy and autotransplant is likely to fix that. So if after cycle four, you're in remission, you're doing reasonably well, check a PET scan. If that's negative, we have a consultation with transplant and then we talk about that. Our bias is to do that. Our internal data, and when I look at the data, this is a complicated area, we, we can talk more if you want, is if there's a benefit, it's probably no more than 20%, maybe 10%, but probably in that range. We don't think that benefit is evenly distributed among all people, like different groups benefit more and different groups are less likely to benefit, but that's kind of what we look at. So when I discuss with patients who are in remission after cycle four, the round numbers we talk about is there's probably if we went through and finished the treatment, there's probably something like a two in five chance that you stay in remission or cured, three in five chance that it comes back. If we had auto transplant, we might reduce that to two in five that it comes back, three in five that you're in remission, but probably no more than that. So you take that information, the transplant doctor, you have a consult and together we'll make a joint decision about what to do. And I explained that to you and I explained to patients in what I think is a fairly even-handed way. I would say most of our patients want a transplant. So there may be ways we explain or the ways they hear that, that most of them make that decision. But for a potential one in five benefit, most of our patients would say, if that will increase my chance of cure, I'll do that. And I think that's how it goes for most of them, for NOS and mostly AITL. I think that that conversation holds. Yeah. So you mentioned, you say different groups benefit. So can you yeah. elaborate on, on that? You lost that little taster. No, yeah. So our, I think as we're learning more, because our approach, there's a lot of controversy about transplant. I think there's some interest in saying transplant doesn't really help. And and if you, depending on how you did a study, all comers are selected or who you enrolled, I, I think it may not. Like PRs, I, I don't think benefit. So I think we've been interested in understanding who benefits and who doesn't. So if you just look at histology, in general, alpha negative ALCL does better than AITL, AITL does better than NOS. NOS is this heterogeneous category. 
there's certain things we're starting to understand in NOS. My colleague, Bill Johnson, just recently published a paper where we just looked at things like P53 and other markers of chemo resistance. Those highly correlated with not having long-term remission, even if you responded to chemotherapy. So my suspicion is there's, there's probably some predictors we could do other than just interim PET that would identify people who are less likely to be successful with a chemotherapy only or intensive chemotherapy approach. And, and, and we see some of that in the histologies and probably underlying the histologies is, is some of the genetics. Again, things that we may talk about, right, in ALCL, the TP63 group is rare, but probably quite chemorefractory. And even in the patients who have a CR, which we have some, they seem to relapse after transplant. P53 altered, PTCLNOS, probably much less likely. That one, I don't know enough that I would do an alloin first remission or totally do different, but that's something that we're looking at that we're starting to see. There probably are groups that are much less likely to benefit and probably groups that are. So those things, they weigh into our thought process, how good your response was, how well you tolerated. And those are things that, that we'll talk about with the patients or the transplant doctors in making that decision. But I think because these studies are being done, and I have a little bias, is not to paint T-cell lymphomas with too broad a brush because they really are heterogeneous, that if you did a study of everybody, the outcomes of what's better or not is largely or significantly influenced by who's in that study. But when we look at our curves, alpha-negative ALCL, if we consolidate, is way up here. AITL and NOS is down here. And then within NOS, we're trying to tease out different groups. All right. We'll go into aloe transplant a little bit. So there was a French, as there was a French and German trial led by Dr. Schmitz, one of the few randomized trials of allogeneic transplantation that randomized 104 um, young patients with PTCL to receive either auto or allo transplant as first consolidation. And it found no difference in PFS or OS because the increased uh, transplant-related mortality with allograft almost exactly made up for the reduction in relapses with allograft. So has this trial influenced your approach to consolidation and who might you recommend for allotransplant in consolidation? Yes, it has not influenced us in any way because not that I was right or we were right, but I think this was the gut feeling. Though this trial does it is extreme in their treatment-related mortality and extreme in their lack of relapse with allotransplant. So our internal data and, and some of the other data for allotransplant, which was mostly relapse PTCLs, we have about a 10% treatment-related mortality and we have about a 30 or so percent relapse. But when we look at our, our allo data, mostly for relapse disease, at the end of the day, between 40 and 50% of people are okay in remission without horrible GVH or severe GVH. And the other 50 to 60% are either treatment-related mortality relapses, and the relapses may be different with different subtypes, or you're alive, not relapse, but you have pretty life-impacting GVH. So our bias for a long time has been that if you might be cured with auto, save allo for relapse because the increased risk probably wipes out the potential benefit, but believing all along that it's a more powerful treatment, more reliably curative. So that that reinforced our practice, though we don't have that few relapses with allo and we don't that have that high TRM with allo. So for first-line therapy, there's a couple of subtypes where autotransplant or chemotherapy alone is very unlikely to cure them or never. Those are things like probably the HCLV1 lymphomas, probably hepatosplenic T-cell lymphomas. I think those were pretty confident that allo and first remission is, is the most reliably or really the, the only curative approach. There's some other rare subtypes like these um, aggressive CD8 epidermotropic T-cell lymphomas of the skin, some of the, the gamma delta T-cell lymphomas of the skin when they're aggressive. Um, probably monomorphic epitheliotropic T-cell lymphoma, the 
previous enteropathy type two, which I, I don't feel like I have a, a great understanding of actually how they do, but we think those are generally cytotoxic or, or lymphomas of the innate immune system. They often have P53 alterations, they have other mutations, and we think those are very unlikely to be cured with auto. So those are groups in an appropriate person we think about allo and first remission. For the more common subtypes for us, ALCL, AITL, PTCL, NOS, it's really for lack of CR, primary refractory disease, or mostly for relapse disease. And, and that's kind of when we'll use that. Cutaneous lymphomas aside, I think the cutaneous lymphomas are generally not cured with auto, and it's not something we do. Transplant for those patients, I think it's a very different discussion. I had a yes. follow-up question sorry, uh, regarding allo. So let's say if somebody's lack of CR or primary refractory disease with PTCL and OS, and you are taking them to allo after, after initial induction, what is the cure rate with allo that are typically code these patients? I usually say, like kind of what I said, like at the end of the day, whether this is a good decision or not is going to be retrospective. But at the end of the day, between 40 and 50%, our data and the data seems to be better with angioinoblastic than some other types. So you, you might shade that a little bit, but about 40, 50% at the end of the day, that was a great decision. You're alive, you're in remission, quality of life is good. And then 50 to 60%, something happened, shortened your life, affected quality of life, or the disease came back anyway, and then and then we're still on treatment. So those are, those are kind of the ballpark numbers that I usually tell people. Obviously, in every patient interaction, you're individualizing it based on them. The TRM, we try to have the transplant doctors, which I don't do transplants myself, talk about that based on their age and comorbidities and donor status and things like that. And then again, like I said earlier, I try not to give broad numbers for patients unless they really want them because, again, I don't know how helpful those numbers are, though I, I think that the chance of it shortening your life for allo transplant, I think patients should understand that going in. Yeah, I think we could spend probably a whole hour talking just about transplant in yeah. in T-cell lymphoma, but but it's so it's a different conversation because of the heterogeneity, I think, which is, is kind of you point out very helpfully. Next, I want to ask about angioimmunoblastic T cell lymphoma, AITL, which under the new classification comes in under the T follicular helper cell subtypes of PTCL. Um, my sense clinically is that s s patients with a AITL more often present with these immunologic phenotypes or inflammatory phenotypes. Is that something that's borne out in the data or is it just something that, that I, because it's in the name, I feel like that's, yeah. that's how it is? Yeah, I think it's true. I think data is always an air quote term for a lot of the things we say in T-cell lymphoma. We see this, I don't know, I don't know that there's true comparative data, but this was originally called AILD, right? Angioimmunoblastic lymphadenopathy with dysproteinemia, not known to be a lymphoma really till clonality studies and things like that could identify that. But yeah, the, the classic presentation is kind of diffuse small volume nodes, poly or monoclonal gammopathies causing some sort of mayhem in the body, ITP, autoimmune hemoglobinemia. We have very, not funny, but funny cases where seven-year-old women were diagnosed with syphilis as a presenting sign because of a false positive antibody. And then that led to a whole uncomfortable conversation. But yeah, I think that's common. I think they tend to have often have symptoms out of proportion to their, the volume of their adenopathy, which I think is certainly different than something like ALCL for the most part. So I, I think that's true. They present with fevers, rash is very common, but it is a inflammatory condition beyond just the, the tumor. Yeah, and I think sort of building on what you we talked about before with the, the chip kind of discussion, there's a sort of growing understanding that the pathophysiology or the sort of disease drivers in these these subtypes might be quite different to some of the other types of T-cell lymphoma. And one manifestation of that is is the kind of 
genetic profile. Do you think that we understand that well enough that frontline treatment can be informed by it? Or is it something really that you only can take into account when our frontline approaches have failed? I think at a minimum, we're learning it should be incorporated into, into, into studying frontline therapy, that these are different diseases that respond differently to different therapies. I think the Roma Depths and CHOP study is a great example of that. So I think we think about it. Understanding the pattern, I think we've been able to correlate with different responses to therapy and different responses to different therapy. I don't think it's tr a lot of those aren't truly targeted in a way that we're targeting the biology of those tumors, but there is some correlation there when we think about things like HDAC inhibitors and, and, and higher response rates. So there's some, some overlap there. So we think about it a lot, but I don't think we have data right now to say you should do this or you should not do this. But you can kind of see that the understanding is there that I think we'll move in that direction and understand that. And, and if we can identify truly more effective agents to, to add to combination therapy, my guess is that will be the next group to have a better frontline therapy. I, I think it almost happened with Romadepsin CHOP. It probably could have happened with Romadepsin CHOP for various reasons. The, the way that study was done and what was not known at the time, it, it didn't. But to me, that's a paradigm where, where that's probably the next group will have a truly better upfront therapy. Yeah, I, th I think I saw a trial out of China doing, presented at ICML doing something similar to that where they almost like a basket trial where they yeah. had the different subtypes go down different secret source here, secret source there kind of approach. Is that sort of how you think about it? Maybe I'll lead into the next question, which sort of goes there anyway, which is there are a, a whole bunch of other agents that, that you can think of select patients who've had really great response to X, Y, or Z. Some of those drugs that I'd, I'd you know, love to talk further with you about include romidepsin, which is an HDAC inhibitor, like you mentioned, uh, azacitidine, which is used in AML as an epigenetic modifier, also has some data, PI3 kinase inhibitors, like Duvelacib, and, and JAK inhibitors like ruxolitinib, and there was also some galitacitinib data presented just recently at ASCO. How do you think about choosing, sequencing, combining, discussing these agents with patients? Yeah. And I think, so you're talking mostly about in like in the relapse setting or, yeah. Some of the stuff we know, I usually talk that there's a number of agents we don't have comparative data. So what we understand from phase two, it's hard to make a, a data-driven comparative decision, but it informs our decision. We're, we're always practicing medicine with the data that we have available to us. And this is, and this is what we have. So I think as, as we understand the biology, there are better ways to match patients with their treatments we don't know that great, but I, we're starting to learn that. And I, I try to be cautious that we don't think we know that more concretely than we really do. But if you can kind of keep that humility that you're not really sure, these can help help inform decisions. When talking to a patient at relapse, though, the first discussion is often, what's our goal? And in a very binary way, your goal is remission to allotransplant with curative intent which may be a direct line A to B, and we're trying to get there quickly. And then we're thinking about CR rates and less concerned about toxicity or cumulative toxicity. We overlay clinical trials with all these scenarios, or a lot of our patients are not thinking about allotransplant as something they want to rush into or ever want, or there's things about them that that would never happen. And then we're thinking about treatments that um, can be given on a continuous basis without cumulative toxicity, because right now we don't have any of these other treatments in the relapse setting other than allotransplant that we know are curative. And for most of these targeted agents that we talked about, I think we're pretty confident they're not curative. And the duration of the remission disease control is best when you stay on them. But we think that HDAC or the epigenetic targets were quite a bit better in follicular helper T-cell lymphomas than the other type. And we have some of our own and some other data to support that. So those are higher choices 
for those diseases. And for sort of the cytotoxic aggressive T-cell lymphomas, we think that's that's not the case, that they're less likely to be a long CR or a long uh, rate of disease control. It is a little interesting, though, that in any of these phases or almost all the phase two studies, angiomunoblastic or follicular helper T-cell lymphoma patients do the best. That's true in some of the JAK inhibitor studies where there's not a lot of JAK stat alterations in those. It's true in a drug sertilatinib that we studied, which is a sick JAK1, JAK3, TIC2. They're not high sick expressors like some of the cytotoxic or gamma-delta T-cell lymphomas. It's true in duvalisib, though PA3 kinase is not necessarily a more important pathway in those. So I don't know. I, in some ways, I just think angiomenoblastic may be a more responsive phenotype, and there may be something that the patient's who come on study are either more likely to be responsive. There's also a higher proportion of those patients that have kind of a more slowly kinetic disease. So we less often see the early progression. Like in a lot of T-cell lymphoma studies, there's a, a chunk of patients who progress within cycle one or two that never got a lot of drug exposure. Those are not usually AITL patients. There's some mix in there, but we, we try to look at that biology. We have a correlation, but not causation with epigenetic targets. I think with things like duvalisib, the AITL patients have the highest response. I, we don't have a good understanding. And when we've looked at the genetics in some of those combination studies or the single agent studies, the genetics very much overlap with the things you'd see in AITL, TET2, things like that. So I don't think that's a target of PI3 kinase. So that I don't totally understand. In some of the JAK studies in, in, in our uh, Ruxlitinib study that Allison Moskowitz led, or in the um, jackpot study, I, I'm impressed that you can say the name of that JAK inhibitor because uh, I, I I can't. It looks like there's an enrichment for responders and people that have alterations of that pathway. For us, there's it, it wasn't statistically significant, but either having uh, mutations or 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 elevated phosphostat three did enrich for response. Having neither of those was less likely for response. And some of the correlative data I've seen from the jackpot study, I think they've seen the same thing. So I think that just sort of like you're predisposed to believe that if that pathway is really turned on, inhibiting that pathway is more likely uh, to go forward. Ultimately, other than some very isolated cases, there are these rare patients with these JAK2 fusions that are exquisitely sensitive to ruxolitinib or JAK inhibitors. Some of those are the CD8 aggressive epidermotropic T-cell lymphomas, those PCM1 JAK2 fused patients that kind of pop up here and there. So there may be some very exquisite targets, but I think in general, we can think of ways to enrich and then probably have to circle back with combination therapy. I don't know if I'm really answering your question. I think I may have tangented off somewhere else. But but I think that's how we think about it. I, I think there's ways to take this very heterogeneous disease and start enriching who's responsive to different therapies. I'd like to do that in the context of a clinical trial where we really try to understand that. And then those patients go a certain way. And then another group of patients, their pathway of, of, of new treatments may, may go in a different direction. I think you absolutely did because you said for this group, here are these two therapies that we prioritize. And for the rest, we're doing our bit, our best to pass them apart, but it's still a bit of an, in its infancy, that process. And so we'd love to do a clinical trial. So uh, I think you're not giving yourself enough credit there because you absolutely did. You did answer the question. I am, um, that does, does bring up another question though, which is, d does every T-cell lymphoma patient need NGS and should it be done at relapse or at diagnosis or both? So need is probably too strong, but I think it's often useful. So we like to do it. Again, I practice in a very specific environment where we have the ability to do it on almost everyone we have therapy. So we like to do it. We like to do the diagnosis because if they end up being non-responsive or progressive after cycle two or three, we would like to have a good idea of what to do next. So it's the kind of information that sometimes when you need it, you wish you had it. So we try to do it, but are very transparent with patients stuff that sometimes this is helpful, sometimes it's not helpful. And by the way, if you're cured with initial chemotherapy, it will be irrelevant to you, but we might 
we might learn from it. So we like to do it. We sometimes do it a second time. So I, I think it can be very informative if you have these other agents available and if you have clinical trials available. I can imagine an environment XUS or a different patient care environment where none of these new drugs are available and none of the clinical trials are available. And then I think it's information that's really hard to act on. But for us, we really, we really like it. And sometimes, sometimes it's quite helpful. So we try to do it, but I, I wouldn't say need, like I, a patient shouldn't put themselves in financial stress to get it or something like that if, it, if it's really not available to them. Totally. I think that's, I think that's a really uh, level-headed uh, recommendation. So I do want to come back to the Romy Depson story because I think it's particularly interesting. You mentioned a bit before that, that Rotroc in, in the phase three trial was negative, but, but you, I would love if you could elaborate a bit about that trial and about what you think the future for Romy Depson looks like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little cloudy. So Romy Depson is a pretty active drug in, in, all comers, it has a 25 or so percent response rate. We think that goes closer to 50% in follicular helper T-cell lymphomas. The ROCHOP study was designed, randomized between Romadepsin CHOP versus CHOP as a confirmatory study for the accelerated approval of Romadepsin for peripheral T-cell lymphomas in the U.S. This is a was a, a, a French study uh, led by Lisa. And I don't think they knew at the time this subtype-specific sub activity. I think there were clues, but not when it was designed. It does add toxicity to CHOP. And when they did the study with all comers, it was a negative study powered very much like Echelon 2 for something like a 50 or 45% improvement in PFS. When you looked at the forest plots, the, the angioinoblastic T-cell lymphoma subset was almost positive, like they just crossed one. And that ended up being about 50% of the patients. They went back and they presented at Lugano this year an analysis of just the TFH patients. They kind of reclassified, cleaned up who was TFH. And that's positive for PFS, not for OS unplanned subset analysis, and not that the Echelon 2 was better designed because it just wasn't known at the time, but the Echelon 2 study, BV plus CHP, powered it for ALCL only. The group that you think you thought was most likely to benefit could be looked at independently, and then everyone else just kind of came along for the ride. Had you done that with the Romadeps and CHOP study, I think that might have been positive, and, and probably it would have been 10 more patients in each arm with AITL, so it would have been almost there, and then you could have powered it, and then that subset might have been positive. Or understanding that the increased toxicity really reduced the intensity of chemotherapy, I think, I think could have also done it. To me, and we're hearing people developing other drugs saying, oh, that study was negative. That was a huge multi-million dollar study. We don't want to do that. I'm like, if you look at that, if you could just enrich your population a little bit, if Romadepsin has a 25% response rate and it adds toxicity, the 75% of patients don't respond, it's not going to help in those. So your benefit has to all be in that group. If we can just increase that group a little bit, and maybe you dose it differently or pick a different drug, you don't add toxicity. Like to me, that's a winning pathway that could recapitulate what we saw in Echelon 2. So that's hindsight. But the consequence is in T-cell lymphoma with these rare diseases, you don't get multiple shots necessarily. So the label was pulled because the confirmatory study was negative. So in the US, we're fortunate that we can prescribe off-label based on guidelines. We have a full approval for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, so it's available and it hasn't really impacted our use. But in other parts of the world, and we worry downstream with certain insurers that they're going to deny that, but we know that's one of the most active available drugs for that subset of patients. I think everyone did the right thing and tried to study it and move it up front to cure more people. But I think that to me is one of the lessons like 10 years ago, treating everyone the same way. I think that's what we knew. We know that these diseases are heterogeneous. And we can separate them out in a thoughtful way, even if we don't know exactly what that means. So when we design these studies, let's 
if we can set them up, we can be a little more sophisticated going forward. Sounds good. So now let's discuss uh, ALCL or anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So when diagnosing somebody with ALCL, is immunohistochemistry for ALK sufficient for you to differentiate the different types? And if so, what cutoff do you use? Yeah, so for ALK, you should be pretty, like if you have ALCL, so you're already in the mix of ALCL, so you got large appropriate looking cells for the most part, they're CD30 positive, and it looks like it's ALCL and not something else, then ALK is a pretty good definer of what's out positive, out negative. Usually most of the cells are out positive, 70, 80%. So it's usually not very, very subtle. There are some non, there are some out positive B cell lymphomas. So you want to make sure you've appropriately excluded that. Those are quite rare, but a lot of downregulate some of the normal T cell markers, some of the T cell receptor markers. So I think you want to be careful on that. And then you should see that there's pretty good outstanding on the majority of cells. So usually that's not too fuzzy. If it's a very small percentage or very weak staining, sometimes we've seen that with the non-MPML translocations. Some of the other translocations seem to have a little less intensive staining or, or, or more variable staining. So you might then go look at, look for what the translocation partner for the ALK is then, and, and it might be one of these more unusual partners. All right. As you alluded to earlier, patients with ALK positive ALCL are the PTCL patients who have the best outcomes, especially with BV chip uh, in the Echelon 2 trial. So are these outcomes good enough for you to forego a transplant in first remission and just observe instead? Yeah, for us, usually usually not for ALK negatives. We we did an analysis. It was, it was, it was not um, pre-specified in the study where we looked at CR patients with BVCHP with ALCL and and who got transplanted, who didn't. And there's still another jump up in those curves with, with a transplant. We have other data that atopicide probably adds most strongly in ALCL, and the ALCL group does the best with transplant when, when this has been looked at in first remission. So my bias is it probably still adds. It's not either or. It might be and. So an appropriate patient for negative ALCL, we would at least talk about transplant with that patient. Patients with very early stage disease, which happens a couple, uh, occasionally in alkanegative ALCL, you have stage one disease, we might add radiation instead of a transplant, but otherwise kind of use the same criteria of CR, tolerating chemotherapy well, and then and then have that conversation. So you said that in ALK negative, your bias is still to transplant these patients. How about ALK positive? If, if they're in a CR, let's say after BV chip, would you still transplant them or observe them? Yeah, those those patients have a much higher cure rate with chemotherapy alone. And, and your typical ALK positive patient has low risk disease. They tend to be younger, lower IPI. And those people we've never really transplanted uh, in first remission. There is a group that has certain risk factors. If you look at IPI3, age over 40 or 45, there's some other multiple extranodal sites. There's some series that say things like MIC, there's some, some biologic variants, leukemic disease. There's a group that's a poor prognosis. And those we, we've historically transplanted in first remission, they're uncommon. But again, some data that a top site is better, some data that a dose intensification is better. So we still kind of apply those same things. There were very few of those high-risk positive ALCL patients in Echelon 2 to know that it really, you could get away without doing that. So my bias is for those really high-risk patients, I would at least have the conversation about transplant. We think that positive ALCL is the best prognosis in the T-cell lymphomas because it is, but there is this group of patients who have very bad sort of refractory disease and and you do get a healthy respect for those unusual presentations that that they're not always so simply cured. Switching gears a little bit, so our patients with ALK positive ALCL who relapse, where do ALK inhibitors known for their role in non-small cell lung cancer fit into your treatment algorithm? How effective are they against ALK positive ALCL? Yeah. 
they're, they're, the studies are quite small, small number of patient studies, mostly pediatric or anecdotal, but the response rates are quite good. So usually 80% or plus response rate. So they're very good at getting the disease back under control, but not curative. So disease is controlled while you stay on those therapies. So that's one of the questions. So we'll use them a lot to get people back into remission, but then decide, do we need to bridge to transplant? Sometimes auto, sometimes allo in that, in that setting, but they're quite effective. They're just not, they're just not curative. So our patients with ALK negative ALCL, are DUST22 or TP63 rearrangement sufficiently prognostic to influence your treatment decisions? So TP63, which is quite uncommon, probably yes. So those patients tend to be chemorefractory. And if we get them into remission with chemotherapy, we would at least think about aloe in that population because most of them don't stay in remission. Most of them are primary refractory, so we don't get them into remission and we're, we're moving on to second-line therapy. DUST22 is a l- unclear and it hasn't influenced me most of the time. So there were some, some an early series from Mayo that looked at DUST22 and those patients being quite favorable as good as ALK positivity for prognosis. Maybe you didn't need to give aggressive therapy. There's been some larger series now, and it looks like they do better than what was then called the triple negative, not ALK, not uh, DUST22, not TP63, but they don't do as good as ALK unless you give aggressive therapy. So I kind of look at that as, as not averse and maybe favorable, but not so favorable that you could clearly get away with less therapy, though it's a conversation. Again, again, even when we consolidate, which we do have a bias towards, it's always an individual decision. The other thing we've seen interestingly, which, which I don't have anything to do about, is we've had some a couple of patients relapse very late, eight, 10 years after transplant. Retrospectively, now that we're looking for this, those seem to be the DUST22 patients. So there may be something more persistent. We see it a lot in cutaneous ALCL, which is an indolent but chronically relapsing disease. So I don't know the answer to this yet, but we are seeing a different behavior with those patients that may do better with chemotherapy, but but we might learn that there's this late relapse. And, and, and if that's really common as opposed to anecdotal, maybe down the road that would inform some of our, our treatment thinking on these patients. There is a bonus question I want to ask you, just because I think it's almost more interesting at a physiological level than it is that clinically relevant, which is around PD-1 inhibitors. Obviously, they're often talked about as taking the breaks off the T-cell. And so when you think about T-cell lymphoma, that makes you think that maybe they can go very, that, that would go very badly. But but there is a small group that where it doesn't seem to go badly. And so I guess my question to you is, how, how does that work? And can you identify a group to use them in or not? It's it's uncomfortable to study them and use them without having that knowledge. So I think what we've learned as a field is that in mycosis fungoides, there's a reasonable response rate. There's rare hyperprogression. In NK T-cell lymphomas, those EPD-positive T-cell lymphoma, there's a reasonable response rate, rare non-existent hyperprogression. There was a study in HTLV-1 lymphomas, which you may be familiar with, where indolent patients were treated. There's an indolent form of that HTLV-1 lymphoma, and three had hyperprogression with PD-1 inhibitors, probably working as a checkpoint inhibitor on the tumor. So that's probably a no-go. Now, there's been other looks at PD-1 inhibitors in Japan with HLV-1 lymphomas with aggressive subtypes where they don't see that. And then there's been various reports of hyperprogression, angioblastic or things like that. I think in those diseases, it gets a little more complicated. Like when you're treating third and fourth line relapse patients, is there a hard definition of hyperprogression that we really know is progression as opposed to lack of response? But I think there's things where reasonable people believe that this patient's disease really accelerated. 
so I think it's tough. I think when we look at the data, we have some subtypes where it works. When you look at the, a lot of the early studies that have, have been small studies, the ALCL patients seem to respond better than others. So maybe that's an area we could study more. Um, structural variant of PDL one may be a predictor of who responds. That's been seen like Michael Cotodos at Stanford has looked at that and something. So maybe that's a predictor of response, but we don't have a predictor of hyperprogression. So my bias right now, while we have a bunch of other ideas that are early in clinical development, is that it's hard to study those broadly unless you could predict who was going to be a hyperprogressor. We studied them in, in, in MF. We studied them in NKT cell lymphomas. But if that could be figured out, there definitely are patients who respond. It's just it's just hard to know how to apply that. But I think it's quite interesting. There are people working on it, so we may get some answers to this uh, at some point. I think it's I think it's very interesting and perplexing at the same time. Yeah, so, no, you know, some of the new studies looking at bispecific antibodies targeting people. Like some of our, we actually think that's that some of these tumors are functionally active. So tumor cells could fight tumor cells. We see bidirectional killing in some of the bispecific antibodies. So tumor cells kill normal cells. Normal cells kill tumor cells. So I, it's complicated when when you're activating T cells as a therapy for T cell lymphoma. Yeah. Totally. But I mean, CAR T-cell, I know there are also a bunch of small studies with, with various results. And I guess there's a similar phenomenon. How do you pick the goodies from the baddies? Or can you even use the, as you say, the, the, the tumor cells to kill other tumor cells? And because PTCL is such a, a complex and heterogeneous group of diseases, kind of each rare enough that many clinicians might not see one subtype very often or, or ever again, even. And we've only in a little of depth covered three of the more common subtypes. I did want to step back for a second and and ask you if you have any take home messages for not not for the I don't know ten T cell lymphoma experts in the world, yeah. but for for everyone else who for whom this is only a part of their practice. What what do you think other than put everyone on the clinical trial and and make sure you have a, a tertiary center involved? What 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 else is your advice for the care of, of PTCL? Yeah, I think I think you want to get the diagnosis right, because I think that's important. I think it is helpful to reach out to people who have more experience if you're unsure. There's, I try to be really non-judgmental. These are rare diseases. We don't have data in most cases that tell you exactly what to do, right or wrong. So I, I think you pay attention. I think most of these people, we still start with combination chemotherapy. And then I think the question of adding something or consolidation, I think, is a bit more nuanced. I think that's sometimes good to have a conversation with the patient, have the patient have a conversation with a, a specialty center for that. But I think you try to make sure you have the diagnosis, right? Try to understand that you're on the right map. Check for HTLV1 if the patient's at all risk, because that's a different that's a different paradigm. And then I, I think pay attention, higher rates of refractory disease, higher rates of relapse. So I, I think sometimes we'll see people applying what I think of as more like more favorable DLBCL approaches. They don't do bone marrows. We don't know that PET scans can rule out bone marrow involvement in T-cell lymphoma. They may not scan and follow up. We like to scan because the relapse rate is higher. And if you pick something, pick up something asymptomatically, you have more opportunities to try alternate therapies. I think the sort of the dialing down on disease and treatment and follow-up and stuff that we do in B-cell lymphoma or maybe Hodgkin lymphoma because we over-treat and maybe over-scan those people, I'm not sure that applies to T-cell lymphoma. So I think paying attention, and then maybe having the patient see someone at a referral center earlier on, not necessarily for initial therapy, but if that doesn't go well, so you already have lined up for a, a, a more likely relapse, you already have lined up what next steps may be. I, I have no sort of like magic tricks or things like that. Oh, just, but, but, but I think it's good oncology and paying attention. It's, it's probably gets you pretty much of the way there. 
Yeah, I think that's um, really, really great advice and, and interesting comments around PET and surveillance imaging as well. We're just delighted and, and very grateful for you coming on. So a huge thanks uh, for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back again to talk T-cell lymphoma sometime. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank you very much.